children actually shape us probably more than we shape them. So we think as parents, our role is to mold our children and that our child's behavior reflects on how we parent to some degree, perhaps, but actually our children have our own sense of agency, our own sense of personality. And evidence shows that we adapt our parenting style based on how our children are. Welcome to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. This week I'm talking to Melissa Hoganboom, BBC science journalist and writer of The Motherhood Complex, an expose of motherhood, warts and all. It's a very personal and thoroughly researched discussion examining behaviours related to pregnancy and motherhood and presents the deep and unresolved challenges as far as how society views the different roles parents play in raising children. It exposes the stigma and biases that women still experience, suffer from when pregnant, as carers and as mothers, for example, trying to reintegrate into the workplace and re-establish identity. I recommend all parents or parents-to-be to read the book. It's made me a better father and so I hope this conversation, part one of which you'll hear today, opens your eyes and gives colour to some of the issues at hand. We're talking about motherhood and sacrifice, gender biases, matrescence, the mum brain and expectations of perfection. You can find my own personal account on fatherhood on a load of bs.substack.com, so I'd love you to read it in accompaniment to this podcast. And of course, share with me your own experiences. Now, before we start, I must, of course, mention my sponsor of A Load of BS, and that's Crankwheel. From Iceland originally, these guys are as cool as ice and are sweeping up new clients like crazy as more of us get Zoom fatigue and want simpler ways to engage virtually with colleagues. Now, some people have the ability to paint a picture in a few words. Crankwheel is for the rest of us. Crankwheel gives you zero friction screen sharing during voice calls. You send a link to the person on the other end of the line and they enter that seamlessly on any browser, any device. No need to log in, no need to register, no what's my bloody password. Crankwheel is particularly great for those first sales calls or indeed for onboarding new customers. It's frankly, for any business where you need to engage with customers in a more efficient manner. I'm really glad that I'm supporting the guys and they're on my side. Now, a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now enjoy the show. Melissa, welcome to A Load of BS. It's a great pleasure to chat with you today. So nice to be here. Thank you. My great pleasure. Now, reflecting the endless diversity of BS podcasts, today we're examining behaviours related to pregnancy and motherhood. You know, these are hugely complex, sensitive, at times controversial and nuanced subjects. They also present very unresolved challenges as far as how society views the different roles parents play in child rearing. I think they definitely expose the stigma that women still suffer from when pregnant as carers and as mothers trying to reintegrate into the workplace. And, you know, these are themes which both Melissa and I are close to because we both have small children. But it goes without saying that Melissa is far closer than I as a woman and mother who has faced and continues to face the inequalities and prejudices that much of our male-oriented Western culture at least throws up. More specifically, you know, Melissa has written now a sharp, insightful and rigorously researched book on these issues called the motherhood complex. So today, more than ever, is about you know real human stories. And we're going to talk about the less discussed deep challenges women face in society as they're 
identities change and question how our collective behaviors need to change to create greater balance in this most important job of parenthood and a far fairer, kinder, more supportive world for women in general. So my first question, Melissa, you say early on in the book that it's primarily written for mothers, but can fathers not benefit too from reading it? Indeed, shouldn't they read it too? Yeah, so when I set out to write the book, I thought, you know, it's about motherhood. Of course, mothers will want to read it. But as I went on, I realized that so much of what I'm capturing would benefit both partners, whichever relationship formation you're in, because so much of the experiences of motherhood are to do with outside perceptions and forces and a lot of inequality in the home. And like, it's a basic fact. If one of the partners in the relationship is spending more time thinking about caring doing more of the caring and is the first point of contact for the caring, they're going to have less time to focus on themselves or their career. And so that's why if males or fathers read this book, I think that they can really help ease that kind of complex that I refer to. So I've actually been surprised by how many men have been interested in reading it. Uh, to understand what their wives are going through. Because I think we are reaching a time when the idea of equality is something most people want to achieve. But if you talk to any couple, you often recognize there is still an imbalance, not because anyone sets out there to be. I mean, in some cases, it's overt, but in many cases in my friend circle, the idea of equality is something that a couple wants to achieve, but they just don't manage for many, many reasons that I uncover. Yeah, that's a dichotomy, actually, that we might come back to, this sort of imbalance between intention and real action. I think that's an interesting subject. But let's just pedal back to an obvious but important question at the start. What, if you can explain in brief, is the motherhood complex? To me, it's the complex between how you feel yourself to be as an individual in the world. And then once you become a mother, how society then views you and the clash between those kind of two selves, because often they don't align, at least not certainly from the outset. Why do you think so little is still written about the real impacts of motherhood? Because from my vantage point, and certainly from you know my wife and other women that I know, most of the literature, and it's a significant uh, genre, is more, let's say, practically driven rather than emotionally driven. In other words, what your book seems to do, you know, it gets to the real nitty gritty, the really more meaningful stuff rather than the sort of the day-to-day practicalities of raising children. I think there's a few reasons for that. First of all, when you become parents, you want answers. You want to know why your child's not sleeping, what you can do to get more sleep, how to feed your child. So there's the very kind of day-to-day reality that you need to just get through the day. And secondly, it's so often motherhood has been kind of embraced or not embraced, encased in this idea of it's something we are set out to do. And then if we are struggling, we think we just have to march through it. You know, it's part of motherhood means sacrifice is what it's often been thought. You know, you do everything for your children at the expense of your own happiness. So I think it's often been taboo to talk about the struggles that you're facing day to day or not to appreciate. Like I remember in one instance, I was talking to someone about sleep deprivation and I'm always careful not to invalidate someone without children if they're having, you know, they're not sleeping well. I never say something like, oh, well, you don't have children because you can't compare the two because you don't have that like for like experience. But there is that perception of, well, you chose to be a parent. So of course you're sleep deprived. So just accept it. But I don't think that's a very fair or helpful narrative because yes, I chose to be a mother, but I did not choose to live in a society where we're expected to do everything ourselves to a perfect level. And if we don't, we're somehow seen to be failing. And that's why I think it hasn't been overtly written about so much, but I think it is having a moment. I see lots more kind of blogs and articles about people talking about the reality. So there's a lot of like toxic 
perfectionism in social media, but at the same time, you're also seeing the rise of people talking about the kind of the mundane and how to get through it and to say that it's okay to be feeling sad or okay to feel like you're failing some of the time, because I think more people having a voice is leading to a bigger conversation. But on the flip side, I don't think it's necessarily always taken seriously. Like you still see kind of the writing about motherhood encased in like pink kind of marketing or in the well-being section. It's not necessarily seen as a serious literature. It's kind of seen as for a woman, which is why I'm so happy that men are engaging with the topic as well. Was it a set of your own personal experiences then which motivated you to write the book or what provoked the project? Absolutely. So I'm a science writer by background. I've always seen myself writing a science book. And then when I had my second child, so three months in, so obviously the first child is very overwhelming. Half of the time you're going with the flow, you're sleep deprived. When I had my second, I felt like I had a bit more time to reflect. I wasn't engrossed in the day to day about sleep or feeding because I experienced that before. And then I just thought to myself, why is no one writing about how strange and challenging this experience is? And maybe they were, but I wasn't reading that because having two children two years apart was like just this kind of tug on every aspect of my mental and physical self. Like you had no time for yourself. I constantly felt like I wasn't doing the right thing for either child because if I was feeding the baby, the two-year-old was kicking off. If I wasn't watching him for a second because I went to the bathroom, she bit him. Like it was just like little things like that. But one instance is fine. You kind of get over it. But if that's your whole day, you're kind of on this stress mode the whole day. I just thought there must be some science that explains why we feel the way we do. And at the same time, I experienced this with my first. I really had that which I alluded to earlier, that clash of selves. So I saw myself as a journalist and a professional. And when I became a mother, that became to the outside world, my primary identity. And I felt like those two identities weren't aligned because in the professional workspace, you don't really talk about the childhood or mothering that much. And if you do kind of like, you know, you don't talk to it about to non-parents often. And I felt like I couldn't talk about it, not because of the people around me, but because the professional self is very different than the parent self. And then I've seen a lot of people write about or talk about that identity clash you know when you become a mother you lose your own identity because you don't have time for anything for yourself because of the way our family structure is set up largely and then when I looked into the literature I found there was a lot of science like sociological psychological neuroscience that kind of explained all these changes and I thought it was like a personal journey for me to validate it what I was experiencing but also explained it which kind of made it much easier to be both a mother and a journalist and be fine with that I'm now four years into the journey I definitely no longer have as much that complex that I wrote about. Since you talk about identity, let's touch on that a little more. I mean, certainly parents, particularly mothers, have to recalibrate their lives when they become pregnant, when they have children. You talk a lot in the book about the new stage in life that motherhood brings and its manifold associated challenges. I mean, you touched on this, but how do women reconcile? How did you reconcile these sort of conflicting emotions? Because you've got this love for a new baby, but then this sense of great loss of past freedoms. Is that an ongoing struggle or is that something you've come to terms with and found balance with? now in your own identity. I'd say both. So I think it's always going to be an ongoing struggle. And I think the research shows that this, the later you have a child, if you've already built up your professional identity, which so many young professionals do, you know, people are having children well into their 30s. Um, so you've already built up the sense of who you are and what you do and what you can achieve. And then as soon as you become a mother, you have to, of course, care for your child. You have to feed them, do all the day to day. And that is all consuming. So I think on a very practical sense, it can be really difficult to reconcile those 
to selves. But I think it's vital to understand what aspect of yourself you miss. And then if you can do carve time aside for that, and that's where the supportive partner comes in. Like for me, it was running. And when I was able to get back into running quite early on, I started feeling more like myself. And, you know, of course, it's difficult to do that if you're a carer, if you're a maternity leave and you're the only one at home. But just making sure that I prioritize that aspect of myself. And when I was prioritizing myself, crucially, I wasn't feeling guilty for it. I know that sometimes it's important to put myself first because then I can be a more present and more happy mother because nobody's happy if for 12 hours a day you're running around after a toddler caring for every need. Yes, it's rewarding. You love them. You want to do the best for them. But when you think about it, like we now live in a nuclear family setup. So there's often two parents in the household. Not always. It's even more stressful if there's only one. And then children. We never lived like that throughout our human evolution. There was always other people around, grandparents, aunts, uncles. And you'll probably notice it yourself. As soon as there's anyone else at home, it kind of eases the load because there's someone else to bounce off. There's someone else to talk to for your children and for yourself. And so all that's going on at the same time. So I think that's why it can feel so stark because it's such immediate, overnight, dramatic shift where you suddenly switch from having your own autonomy to suddenly having almost none. You talk in the book about this term matrescence, which I think was popularized by the psychiatrist and writer Alexander Sachs to represent through the birth of this mother identity. Is that what you've just described? Perhaps you could just unravel what matrescence means in terms of the psychological, physical changes that women are transitioning towards as motherhood approaches. Yeah, absolutely. Alexander Sachs writes about matrescence as the birth of a mother. And she kind of says, you know, when we become adolescents, there's so many hormones going on in our brain that it's essentially completely changing who we are. And the same happens when you become a mother, like during pregnancy, you have lasting brain changes. So neuroscientists have shown that you can identify just from brain scans, someone who's been pregnant and someone who hasn't. And the brain is really optimizing itself to a caring role, which then after experiencing motherhood, so the day-to-day changes that you're doing literally is affecting the brain. The hormonal changes affect how you perceive the way your baby cries and how you experience emotions. And that can happen for the father too, but to perhaps a slightly lesser extent at first. So matrescence is such an important word because it represents the fact that you are becoming something completely different, not only in the practical sense and the kind of the way people see you, but physically the bodily changes are more obvious. You know, your body grows a human and then if you breastfeed, your body is feeding a human, but the kind of lesser seen changes in the brain. So it's really important to understand that that is another reason why the identity clash is almost so inevitable because there's so much going on in your body. And I think if you understand and expect that, it can make that change slightly more easy or positive. Because of course, for me, I was fairly mentally well, but we know that so many people experience postpartum depression. There's to a lesser extent postpartum psychosis. And if we expect to change, then maybe some of those changes will be talked about more and we can pick up some of the more serious mental health issues earlier on. Because often people don't realize, like I was speaking to a friend of mine who had a traumatic birth and she suddenly mentioned she'd been having flashbacks. So I said, I'm sorry if I'm out of line here, but you know that flashbacks are a sign of postpartum PTSD. And she had no idea. So I think because it's not talked about, because we kind of just go on, because it's so all-consuming, we can miss those key moments that have huge impacts, not just on ourselves and our own well-being, but you know, there's evidence to show that if you experience a mental health issue as a new mother, it could have effects on your child as well. Doesn't need to, but if you know you're not understanding it or treating it. So I think that's where matrescence is not just an academic term, but actually a new way of thinking about kind of the birth of motherhood. 
And in parallel to that, you talk about the mum brain, which I think is relevant. And that's, of course, actually a real condition backed up by science, although I suspect that it is also used pejoratively. I mean, in parallel to what you've been saying, from your own experience and from your own research, how is the brain changing? How does the behaviour of expectant mothers change during pregnancy and also postpartum? So there's lots of ways the brain changes on a a quite neuroscientific front. There's something going on called synaptic pruning, when literally areas of the brain are being optimized, getting rid of some of the neurons, so to speak, that aren't especially useful during that time. So if you think about like weeding the garden, you're getting rid of the weeds that aren't necessarily that useful. So we see during pregnancy, there's a decline of gray matter. So that sounds like a bad thing if you think, oh, wow, I'm losing parts of my brain. But actually the brain is optimizing. So there's bits that are being strengthened and the areas that are strengthening are important for a theory of mind and that's like inferring the mental states of others and of course as a mother you have to know how your child is feeling in order to care for them so there's that going on but then what I wanted to understand when I was looking into the mum brain is so many people around me were like oh I've got a mum brain or a pregnancy brain referring it to into a referring it to it in quite a negative way you know to show why they were being forgetful or why they weren't on top of it and I found this hugely frustrating especially when you look at the literature that shows the brain is actually improving, being optimized to be a better carer, so to speak. And I think when you look at other studies that show that there's a cognitive decline because it is found, it's not because of the brain, it's often because of sleep deprivation or your own self-perceptions. There was one study that I really liked that said a mother's idea of her own cognitive decline was actually worse than what it was in reality. And if there was a decline, it was very, very minimal. So it wasn't enough of a decline to be as forgetful as some people say they are. On the other hand, if the brain is being optimized towards specific caring roles, then it might also come at the expense of other things. So it's more important to know where your child is when they've been fed rather than to know where you've placed your keys. So it's not about the mum brain being less capable. It's about reorganizing. And I found that quite nice to know as well. So yes, the brain's changing. So mum brain is a real thing, but it's not a deficit, or at least I don't see it as a deficit. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross, and my guest, Melissa Hoganboom. I want to give a shout out at this point to a series of podcasts which I personally love and rate highly for their breadth and consistently high quality of conversation with people leading extraordinary lives. And that's the How To Academy podcast, which is a show for people who really love big ideas. Each week, they host world-renowned thinkers, leaders, artists and entrepreneurs in conversation for a deep exploration of their life and work. So from President Clinton to Prime Minister Gordon Brown, novelists such as William Gibson, Isabel Allende, Elizabeth Gilbert and Ian McEwan, environmental actors, Activist Jane Goodall, psychologist Steven Pinker, actor and model Emily Ratajkowski. It's really a feast for anyone interested in improving themselves and the world. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. I really urge you, do really give it a go and let me know what you think. Now, recommendations over for a moment. In this second half of the show, of this show this time, we'll be discussing cultural differences in child-rearing, expectations of perfection and gender bias. Now, on with the show. (music) 
there seems to be this sort of pregnancy stereotype around kind of forgetfulness or some kind of cognitive decline, whereas actually it's more perhaps an evolutionary adjustment, which has some positive effects as well. But nevertheless, I think, you know, women definitely seem to have the rough end of the stick because, you know, more generally, of course, you talk about certain behaviors, which in men are definitely viewed as positive and in women as undesirable. You know, the typical example would be that where in angry behavior in women would be seen as assertive behavior in men. So I'm been sort of thinking about this in a personal level as both of us who are parents of daughters, you know, how do we protect them from inheriting these sorts of biases? This is such a difficult question, one I've been looking into a lot in articles for the BBC as well. It's so difficult in our society because we are literally primed to think about gender before birth. So as soon as a pregnancy occurs, people will ask you what the sex is and then have expectations on it. There's even studies that show women who knew the sex of their child labeled their fetus and their body as more active if they thought they were a boy. There's evidence to show that mothers overestimate the crawling abilities of their sons compared to daughters. Mothers, in fact, talk more to daughters than to sons. And so when you say things like, oh, well, girls talk earlier, is that true? The evidence shows that actually women are talking to to girls more than they talk to boys. And then we ascribe similar traits to, you would call a two-year-old. How many times has someone said to me, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. And the neuroscientists say that this just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you see it in research as well. When you look at, there's one really notable study on giving women a Tetris game for three months. After three months, it actually improved the visuospatial area of their brain. So then when you ask the question, are men better at reading maps? Well, if they're doing it more, for sure they are. So every aspect of our society is literally priming and changing the brain. And the more we talk to girls and boys in gendered ways, the more they will go into those gendered roles. So then language becomes really important. And I think the balance here is really difficult. So you don't want to tell a girl that wearing pink or being a princess is bad, because then what lesson are you telling her? Are you telling her it's bad to be feminine? So I think it's just about understanding that these gender constructs exist, talking to your child about them. We can't kind of undo gender. We can't get rid of all the pink unicorns, but we can, you know, offer it to both sexes. Like my two-year-old boy loves playing with dolls, but very rarely do parents buy dolls for boys. And as he grows up in nursery or at school, he will soon learn that dolls are girly and will stop playing with them. It doesn't mean he wants to stop playing with them. There was a really nice study to show that there was like preschool children playing with dolls. And when the boys were playing with them, they were like hiding the doll playing behavior. So they still wanted to play with it. And so if you think about, a society where literally from birth we're giving cars to boys and dolls to girls, of course they're going to grow up expecting that that is what they like and then they will start liking those toys. So I don't think it's innate that boys prefer cars. I mean, cars didn't exist 100,000 years ago. So it's just a slightly strange argument if you look at it that way. Absolutely. I mean, just to build on that, what do you think the real life effects then of dolls still predominantly being marketed to girls rather than boys are? It has huge impercussions, like those studies that show that when even before girls reach secondary school, they are valuing their self-worth more on how they look than their academic achievement. In schools, teachers expect boys to be better at maths and science. And then you see that result played out in the STEM fields. There's far fewer female engineers. My sister-in-law is an engineer. I know lots of girls are interested in that sort of thing. It not only has repercussions on the type of careers you grow up to be, but the way you view yourself and the way that society views you. And, you know, right now we're having 
having a real, obviously it's, it's always been underlying, but it's been brought to the forefront where there's been a real, you know, toxic masculinity issue where it's actually seen. So if a boy gets called girly at school, it's an insult. And so boys will conform to kind of a more masculine stereotype to fit in with their peers. And that's at the detriment of a girl. And so you have this power imbalance where boys are men are seen as the more dominant, powerful sex and girls are, you know, the lesser ones. And you see it in experiments, like it is improving slightly. Like a few decades ago, if you asked boys and girls to draw scientists, 99% would draw a man. Now it's improving a little bit, but it gets worse as they get older. So the older the child is, the more likely they are to draw a male when you ask them to draw a scientist. And girls are the ones that are more likely to draw females. So it's these kind of gendered roles really affect who we think we can be. And that's why it's so important for us as parents to help our children understand that they can be whatever they want. And hopefully that message gets through once they go to school as well. On a small level, like I was doing the laundry the other day and I asked my daughter, who's now four, to help. And she's like, no, 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 that's mommy's job. And so, of course, if she sees me do that more than she sees her father do that she thinks it's a woman's job and what's that going to impact her as, as she gets older I mean we know that roles at home are very gendered and that happens even before children and just gets worse after children so I don't want her to grow up thinking that she's the one that should be cooking and doing the laundry but often in couples the tasks are quite gendered so there's many many areas where we can kind of talk about this imbalance change this imbalance and it's going to have an effect on our children so if you tell parents like if you have equality at home your daughter will be more likely to have the same and that shows in the literature as well like girls of working mothers are more likely to have professional jobs themselves yeah i think all these patterns and ideas are embedded in kids from an early age clearly whether it's about mother as career person as well or indeed who is doing which task in the kitchen but i mean clearly you know women have to bear so many more very entrenched gender biases you know from how we think about anything from contraception how we pay people at work how we talk to our children as we've just discussed are indeed our expectations of them the things we buy for them as we've also discussed again on the sort of nature nurture discussion to what extent do the behavioral expectations of women and mothers actually then impact their real behavior i mean it seems there's obviously a strong correlation there I think huge. So when I was doing the research for my book, I have a whole chapter just on perceptions. So I think that's another reason why going into when you become a mother, it can feel quite stressful because there's so many perceptions of what a good mother is and what a good mother does from the kind of everyday to preparing organic foods to making sure you have the right kind of baby carrier, picking the right school, the right nursery. Are you sleep training? Like every aspect is steeped in expectation and perfectionism. And that is so not only confusing, thing overwhelming. You know, there's studies to show that when mothers who read more kind of parenting advice books talking about routine have more instances of depression. So the more we try and seek ways to do things perfectly, the more we might feel like we're failing. And coupled with kind of social media posts of people seeing that perfect families on pictures tend to talk about like the mundane or the tantrums or the stress. And so in your experience in that, I mean, like we, we often joke that we're like, why are our kids always the ones that are kicking off? Why is my son always climbing in the museum? and every other child seems well behaved. Um, I think we have this idea of how our children should be or we see other children and then we think that there's something somehow that we're not doing right and then we take that personally. But the truth is, you know, there's so many ways of being a family and there's no right one answer. And then another thing that I found really welcoming to learn and I I wrote about this this week, in fact, on, on the BBC is our children actually shape us probably more than we shape them. So we think as parents, our role is to mold our children and that 
our child's behavior reflects on how we parent. To some degree, perhaps, but actually our children have our own sense of agency, our own sense of personality, and evidence shows that we adapt our parenting style based on how our children are. So on a very basic level, if you have a shy child, you cannot make them change their you know, temperament. What you can do is to help them learn how to overcome it. So if you have a shy child, you wouldn't invite you know, 10 children around for a play date. You might only invite one. Whereas if you have a more active, sporty child who shows interest in that, you would be more likely to send them on those kind of activities. And the staggering fact that I came across with this is, so identical twins raised apart, so raised in different families split up from birth, are more alike than fraternal siblings raised in the same home. So if you have a sibling, think about how different you are to them, even though you have the same environment. So that kind of just shows there's so much of our parenting that actually doesn't change the child that much. We act on our child's natural disposition. It's not, scientists are very careful to say how you are born is not deterministic, but it's probabilistic. And we as parents can work with our children to give them the best outcome, but we're not going to mold them into who they want to be. I mean, family conflict one-on-one on any drama is a child not living up to what their parents want them to be. And it's because it's impossible. And I think understanding that makes parenting a little bit more stressful. It's perhaps inevitable that from where we sit, we are very hugely influenced by the Western culture around us and the societal norms, which are dictated by that. You reference in the book and other cultures, you know, who raise children far differently and indeed who pass their children around many different family members where actually parents are often a little more removed and less involved on a minute by minute basis. And of course, the research shows that those children develop just fine. So as you say, there's absolutely no right or wrong. Our sort of perceptions of what the right way must be, which is sort of leaning towards a more intrusive involvement is perhaps false. Absolutely. And then that's when talking about the nuclear family becomes so important. So we in the West have this very small family set up, but in many other cultures, there's, you know, a whole society raising the child. That's why we all know that phrase, it takes a village to raise the child. And it's true, you know, like it makes parenting less stressful if there's more people involved. Children can be well attached to more than one caregiver. So there's this idea that a mother's care is best. That's absolutely not found in the science. They can have many, many caregivers that they feel comfortable with and they benefit from. And then in the West, obviously, we have ideas of what parenting is, but even there, there's differences. So I'm from the Netherlands originally, and it has its own problems with regards to gender equality. The pay gap's quite large, but there's not such a strong pull on the mothers in the same ways there are here. Like the dad often will pick up the child from school, leave work early, have a daddy day midway during the week, and it's not frowned upon. And this kind of comes from a societal infrastructure where you're not valued by the hours that you work. Obviously, there'll be outliers, but in many jobs, if you're staying late, they'll be like, why are you still here? Why are you working overtime? You should be at home with your family having dinner. And you see similar in Sweden, like there's no stigma about leaving to pick up your child. You're not seen as a less capable employee. Whereas in Japan, you know, there's a huge overwork culture. There's a huge gender pay gap as well. And you're literally valued based on how much you work. And so those kind of societal infrastructures then impact how you are as a family. And then when you look at non-Western cultures and see, you know, children are much more helpful earlier on, they're part of the community more. There's not such a stark difference between childhood and adulthood in the way we have it here. Like children are more valued as part of society, which is, you can't pluck, I'm always careful, you can't pluck desirable traits we see in other countries and apply them to us because there's so many ways we're set up. And, you know, like here, children go to school, we work in a hunter-gatherer society, there isn't that divide, so you can't really compare it. But it is 
is interesting that in non-Western societies, sometimes there isn't such a weight necessarily put on the mothers or on kind of that perfectionist ideal. And then you also see less instances of burnout. So on a very physical and kind of well-being front, there isn't that same mental health decline that we see here. And obviously there's sensitive ways to measure that. And you have to acknowledge that, you know, we have a lot of luxury here. We have access to great medicine and we don't have some of the health issues faced. So it's, you have to be really careful when you talk about these kind of cultural comparisons. But I think all this does go to show that there isn't one way to be a parent or a mother and understanding that I think maybe can help us let go of some of the guilt and perfectionism that we're always feeling pressure on. There ends part one with Melissa. Next week we're going to discuss cultural differences, maternal gatekeeping, the value of the lean-in movement, the cognitive labour load that women have to carry, technology, depression and how we change behaviours to reduce the impact of gender bias in parenthood. We're covering a lot of ground in a short space of time. Indeed, we're scratching the surface of many important issues in this conversation. So if you want to get into it in greater detail, do go and buy Melissa's book, The Motherhood Complex. And once you've done that, go to Apple or Spotify, of course, and leave me a five-star review. Come on, what is stopping you? Be well, until next time.